Audi. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. What would it be like to be based in London, New York and LA? Well, wonder no further because award-winning reputation management consultant, media commentator and host of the popular Media Masters podcast, Paul Blanchard, is here to tell us. When he's not hot-footing it to all corners of the globe or hanging out with the rich and famous, he's on a farm near Milton Keynes. But he's here now to tell us all about his travels. Please welcome Mr. Paul Blanchard. What is reputation management and do I need it? I had a very misspent use, you know, is this something I need or what is it? It's a great question because I'm not quite sure the answer anyway myself really. Reputation management, half of our clients want attention, they want the spotlight. You know, if we can get them on news night and they say, yep, we absolutely love to do that. Oh, by the way, what am I talking about? You know, they'll turn up to the opening of an envelope type thing. And, and organisations benefit from having a more visible CEO and thought leader. So half our, half our clients want the limelight and the other half don't want the limelight. Uh, it's not that they've got anything to hide as such. We would never work for anyone unethical or breaking the law or anything like that. But there are lots of incredibly private people, family offices, philanthropists who want to raise awareness of their philanthropy, but without making it look like they're doing it for vanity. You know, that whole cliche of billionaire hands over an oversized check to the local charity. It's the opposite of that. But on the other hand, they still want other billionaires to start working with them to fund their projects because otherwise the the charity ends up being dependent on them so kind of profile raising without making it look like they're profile raising it emerges out of PR but again it's not really we don't issue press releases we don't you know because I mean all journalists I know hate press releases they get spammed by them all the time they're often trying to get themselves off media databases so that because otherwise you end up getting 40 odd emails a day I get them for goodness sake doing my podcast and I've, I've got a lot of information from your book Fast PR which I read um, and devoured in an afternoon and I've got a lot of personal uh, good information from it as well but I'll, I will get around to your book in a minute because I do want to talk about it. No, it's really it's Well, there's always good. a bit of a vulnerability when you release a book because, you know, they, they, they have a name for it now where it's called imposter syndrome where, you know, there was a genuine moment where I thought, I, you know, I put a lot of time into this and I, I hold myself out as a PR person uh, and I think I'm good but there was a little worry that when it goes to market that, like, the top 50 PR people would look and say and laugh at me as if to say you've missed these 11 important things how, how can you possibly say that you know what you're doing if there's all this and it's just imposter syndrome because it's been largely positive but, I like you I, you as well interview a lot of people at the top of their game and I think everyone feels the same way but you actually probably are at the top of your game now whether you realize that or you know internally or not I, I, I don't know I just I I mean, you can never take anything for granted, but we, we, have, we work for 46 chief executives around the world. I, you know, we haven't been fired recently by anyone, so as long as they think that we're doing a good job, then, uh, then I imagine we are. So Twitter also tells me that you're based in London, New York and LA. Now that sounds pretty damn fabulous. How does that work? I have uh, 15 staff here in Wardour Street in uh, London. I have three people in New York and one in LA. They're actually in San Francisco, uh, but it's the same thing, really. I mean, I know it's not the same thing. It's like five hours fly, or uh, sorry, five yeah, hours drive, a, one hour flight. As a travel professional, <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. did, wanted to point out that they're not the same place. No, they're not, but I, I regard them in my mind operationally as the same place. Although they're two different markets, actually. LA is very Hollywood, as you'd expect, and uh, San Francisco is very tech. 
But yeah, so I, I actually have a really weird lifestyle. I, my wife and I have a farm in a village near Milton Keynes. I am, when I'm in the UK, which is every other week, I live in the countryside and commute into London every day and work in Soho. And then every other week I live in America. So, and I alternate, I do a week in New York and then a week here in London and then a week in LA, stroke San Francisco and then a week here in London. And it, it works really, really well. Does so. it get too much ever? Because I've done a huge amount of traveling and sometimes that, that sort of travel does sound a bit intense. Not really, because I'm, I'm used to it. I mean, it's a routine now. So when I'm doing an American week, I normally fly out on the Monday night and Norwegian do a, a 5 p.m. flight from uh, Gatwick. And I, everything around my diary is already organized around that. And it's, although it's an eight hour flight, you only lose three hours because of course it's five hours behind. So you land at about half eight, I get a taxi from JFK into Midtown where our offices are and I stay in a hotel and I'm normal, even though I think it's 2 a.m. body clock time, it's actually 10 o'clock, half nine there, I have a quick bite to eat and then although I'm really tired, it's also time to go to bed so I wake up the next morning at a normal time and then and then work and then I get the 11 o'clock, 11 p.m. flight back either on the Friday night so I have a full day, usually get to set off for JFK around eight so you know full day on Friday and then I just sleep I fly economy there because I'm awake and I thought well I'm not going to pay for flat yeah. bed if I'm not going to use it but I fly business back and then I literally sleep I have a quick bite to eat uh, I try not to eat airline food really because I've become incredibly vain as I've got older and it's very salty and fatty and don't get me wrong it's delicious but you can just by cutting out airline food I've probably lost half a stone generally and oh, I, Twitter tells me you're a vegan as well though that's correct yeah so I, I, I fly back through the night wake up and then I'm back at home for about lunchtime Saturday and then I carry on living a life. It's really good actually. It's one of those terrible jokes about vegans and I don't eat meat and haven't done for 20 years, but um, they're about, you know, don't ask a vegan. How do you know if they're a vegan? They'll oh, don't worry, they'll, they'll tell you within yeah, five seconds of meeting. Yeah, 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 yeah but, um, but it was me that brought that up. But does that make it different uh, when you're traveling? Is that ever a problem? Nah, I mean, to be honest, it's much more mainstream now. I mean, every airline has the options of it. I mean, we're recording this in Soho where there's about eight vegan restaurants within, you know, spitting distance. Uh, LA, New York are vegan meccas really. And besides, when I turned vegan, I always, one of the promises I made myself is I thought I don't ever want to be one of these awkward vegans like you kind of referred to there. You know, you can actually go into any restaurant and usually get a vegan option. But I'm one of these no trouble vegans. You sound like a, you're a northern male, I can tell by I your am. accent. So Correct on both counts. This is not the, um, this is not, I don't know what your upbringing was like. Was this what you oh, were it was tough. Oh, it was tough. Yeah. I, had it. I, mean, north, I was it? born at an early age, you know, worked uh, 14 years down pit, uh, etc. No, yeah, I had a, I had a really good upbringing, you know, mother and father loved me very much and uh, got into a you know, a bit of mischief that normal kids do, nothing major, and uh, yeah. But where was it? In York. In York. Oh, yeah. York is beautiful. It That's is. posh Yorkshire as well, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's not Harrogate. It's not, you know, Boston Spa and, you know, all of these other more posh areas, I would say. Yeah, it was great. I lived in York for 30 years, and it was great. I served on the council. I stood for parliament around there. I was very active in there. I think my mum always thinks I might move back at some point, but as I've said to her, you know, it's a big world out there. There's no way I'll move back to York ever. Not to disrespect it, but I've done it. I'd, there are other places to live. You know, I quite like to live in New York or, you know, somewhere else, Washington, D.C., Sydney, Australia. I, I do get around a bit with work. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, York's great, but I, I very rarely go back now. When you go to New York, what's the most New York thing that has ever happened to you? You, you do become more New York. I mean, New Yorkers are amazing. Uh, you, you, there's no airs and graces. They can 
Yeah, New Yorkers are very, very New York in the way that they go about it, insofar as that they can be incredibly pleasant and warm and polite. But then if they feel that they need to tell you off, they'll do so as well and then switch back. And it's not that they're being false. In fact, they're being more true to themselves because they'll criticise and condemn when necessary and then praise. And it's it, that's the New York spirit, in my view, is that you always know exactly where you are with a New Yorker. And I really respect that. You know, here, if someone's playing their music loud on a train, because I'm English and it's I'll go and just roll my eyes to myself. Whereas in New York, they'd say, can you turn that off? You know, oh, that was a terrible accent. <laughs> uh, and I quite like that, that, that you know you know where you are with them, but uh, New York's absolutely great. Every time I'm in New York, I think, ah, oh, forget out there, this is where it's at. You know, it's the global center of commerce and business, and but you know, it's everything's where it's at. And uh, I then go to LA and I think, oh, screw New York, it's warm here, Santa Monica Beach, everyone's relaxed, and you know, there's a lot of money and a lot of business in LA as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm bi-coastal, but I'm also bi-coastal in an extremely fickle and shallow way. Whichever one I'm not in is the one that gets my, you know, ire. <laughs> I think that's the beauty about having that sort of lifestyle, is it is quite a, a fickle lifestyle in the nicest possible way. You're getting the best of, of three worlds there, you know, London and the West Coast and the East Coast as well. Yeah, and we, I mean, we, I've been to 26 states in America. I love America. Not only do I work there, but I travel there a lot for leisure. My wife and I have just got back from a two-week driving holiday in California. We started in San Diego and worked our way up to San Francisco with a few details right into the states as well. We went to uh, Yosemite and we went to uh, Mount Shasta. So they were like six hours. I mean, the vastness of California is, well, vast. It's great. But we also have some clients in the south. I'm really, uh, we've got one client in Little Rock, Arkansas, for example. I was there recently. And I, you know, I love the South. I think there's a, even within America, there's a there's a lot of snobbery about the so-called flyover states. And uh, you know, I've I've done quite a few of the southern states now, and I f- feel that there's nothing but warmth and friendliness and openness. I I, I would never admit this publicly, and of course, I do hope you, you cut this. He said, knowing you won't. But I, I like country music, so it was my birthday recently, and we were in Little Rock, and my wife suggested that we actually just spend two or three days in Nashville, Tennessee. So we did. Although there was one annoying thing because it, it's like an hour's flight direct and we booked the wrong flights and ended up going back via uh, Houston, Texas. So we flew like three hours in the other wrong direction to fly four hours back. So what should have been a one hour flight, we discovered as we checked in and we were at the gate, you know, I hadn't checked it, that it was actually seven hours. But by the time we got there, we had a great time. What was it like? Tell me. Nashville. Oh, I love Nashville. It's, it, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a great city. Broadway is a little bit... A lot of people call it like Nash Vegas, as it were. It is a little bit like Blackpool, you know. Uh, there's a lot of hen parties and all of that. But if you find the right uh, the right bars, because uh, all of them have got live music on, and they're all people that have sold up and moved from all corners of the world to make it in country music. So it's not just like some some guy on a guitar who's just there in the local pub, you know. It, it, they've got each bar has got seven or eight different acts on. And uh, the music is just absolutely incredible because they do their own music, they do covers. They also, I mean, we did one, there was one that did a lot of Whitney Houston and things, you know, it's really enjoyable. I'll tell you the thing that really struck me, because they're, they're after tips, is just how funny they were. There's a lot of these guys, you know, these bands that are sort of three or four of them and they're all, they're singing their heart out. But between their songs, they're cracking gags. And they're genuinely funny. I was crying with laughter with some of them because it was just hugely entertaining. Did you, uh, did you wear cowboy boots with your hat? I did, unfortunately. Did you? No, yeah. don't. I'm a massive fan of cowboy boots. In yeah. fact, mine I that I bought in LA. This morning, actually. Oh, I wish you had it done. I had, mine that I had uh, bought in LA about 20 years ago just died last year, and I haven't found any replacements yet, and I'm feeling bereft. 
Do you know the biggest problem is I'm, I've suffered from Tom Cruise syndrome, which is why what you, I'm, I don't, I'm You're not, a Scientologist. I, I, no, I was about to say I'm not a dwarf, <laughs> but I'm not tall, is what my mum used to say. I'm five foot seven, and my boots literally add about three inches to my height. I look like a normal, normal person wearing them. Uh, so, you know. You get those things that go in shoes, though, can't you? Yeah, but of, I wouldn't do that. No. You know, you can take it too far where, like, Nicole Kidman had to stand in a hole so that when they were bad <laughs> pictures and they looked equal height. But yeah, I love national. She Nashville. had to do a lot of weird things, apparently. Do you do that to your wife, make it stand there? Uh, no, she's the same height as me. Oh, which okay. is incidentally interesting because if she then wears heels to something, she towers over me to the exact amount of whatever heel she's wearing. So I prefer it when she uh, wears flat shoes, but of course she wants to wear heels yeah, exactly. unreasonably. Oh, but yeah, I've done, I've done 26 states now, so I've done more of America than not now. We've got another holiday planned this year. We're going to do another five states we've not been to. We're going to go up the middle. But, you know, I've been to, I spent a lot of time in Alaska, Hawaii, a lot of time on the West and East Coast. America is quite... Is quite you know, similar to us in many ways, but also very different as well. It's a bit of a, 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 a culture shock, yet a non-culture shock. But have you had any moments when you've thought, oh, this is, this is a little bit different to what we might experience in the UK? America's, the, the, the old joke is that it's two countries divided by a common language. And, and I think that is right, because it, it is easy, because they speak English, to sometimes, you get shocked from time to time that you're actually in a foreign country, that everything about how they go about their lives is based from... Even the bits we agree on, they come at it from a different place. So that's fascinating, you know, in terms of how they live their lifestyle. When you get to, I mean, I love, I love the kind of New England type states. I, I love New York. I love uh, like Boston. We've got a few clients in Boston. Love going there. And then you compare that to the the vastness of California and LA and how they just, it's just completely, the, the contrast is just absolutely incredible. You know, we spent two, two weeks driving around California and even just the difference between San Diego and like uh, Santa Barbara and you know LA, San Francisco. I mean, we, we just had a blast. It was just absolutely incredible. Even within California, just the, 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 how vast it is. And, and the difference, you know, you think of California and you think of LA and San Francisco and San Diego and all of those, but actually when we were driving between those main things, it's amazing t- to see just how rural California is. We learned, we spent a lot of time in rural California. And when you think about it retrospectively, of course it's rural. It can't all be city. Uh, and therefore, whatever's not city is clearly countryside. But actually, you know, for driving for sort of three hours through nothing but nothing is quite, quite incredibly humbling, actually. I love it. People take the piss out of Americans for not having passports. But when you do, you know, take a journey across America and realise just how vast it is, you can kind of understand. You could, you've got however many different countries there within the same country and yes they all speak the same language but there's such a vast difference between the mountainous regions the country the cities the east coast the west yeah. coast chicago the it's yeah. incredible all of it. love chicago absolutely i love live jazz i'd spend weeks in chicago it's one of my favorite places in america but uh my wife didn't like it well, oh, i did really? That's oh, interesting. I absolutely what did. doesn't she like about it I, I i don't think there was anything really that she that really caught her attention, but I like pizza pie. I I love live jazz, (laughs) I like pizza pie. I like the Chicago's attitude. It's it's even more direct than New Yorkers, really. They don't mess about the Chicago. And it's also, there's an honesty to, to that, Way where if they're being nice, it's not they're they're not being false. They're being nice because they're being nice. It, it, because if they were if they needed to 
you know, uh, tell you off for something, they tell you off. And again, forget about it just as quickly. There's no grudges, but I, I love it. Have you ever felt like threatened in other places? Because, you know, you, you, you think places like the States are really safe and then you hear like the gun crime figures and realise that thousands of people are killed by gun crime. They are. And clearly there's, even though America's amazing, there's three or four things that are utterly batshit and lunatic about it, including, you know, the fact they don't have a working healthcare system, really, uh, guns. There's loads of things that's crazy about America, and I say that as, as one of its biggest fans. But uh, no, I mean, statistically, of course, you're still extremely not likely to be a victim of violence. No, I've never felt in any way vulnerable. Uh, and in fact, my work takes me around the world. I've, I've worked in, like, Tajikistan, Nicaragua. I've worked in uh, uh, Tbilisi, Georgia. Right where Tajikistan actually is. You know, it's right next to Afghanistan. It's mid-Asia. Right? Uh, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, we, we got around on donkeys at one part. You know, it's it fantastic. What were you doing? Like PR for a donkey safari or something? So one of our biggest, longest-term, longest-standing clients is a global microfinance bank called uh, Finca. They lend to the very poorest people in the world so that they can help themselves out of poverty to start businesses. They're active in 29 countries and uh, they work. I mean, they're the second largest bank in Pakistan, they're working with them and with the global sea. I've been to like Nicaragua, Tajikistan, Tbilisi, Georgia, all over, loads of places now that I'm going to get in trouble for having forgotten been there. So yeah, you get to see the bit that the tourists don't see. I, I'm a big fan of what they do. I know I'm not paid to publicise them, but, but I genuinely am. I think there's a there's a frankly kind of racist cliche of, of white man goes to, oh, I've been to sort of like... Uh, uh, been to Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda, those kind of places with them as well. And that racist cliche, white man comes with bag of money and bag of grain. First of all, it robs the, the people there of their dignity, encourages dependency. And actually, their entrepreneurs need the same as ours do, which is access to capital so they can help themselves and get themselves out of poverty and start the business. And that's the bit that I, I really like there. So that's one of the w reasons why I've got to see, been very, very lucky to see a lot of those kind of locations. Uh, South America is the only bit that I've never been to and we've done a lot of the Far East as China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, like Malaysia. We've got clients in Australia, so I do get around there as well. I spend a lot of time on planes, as you can see. Probably one of the reasons you invited me on this. It is actually great for air miles as well. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about this donkey ride in Tajikistan. Tajikistan is amazing, really. I was hearing, this was a few years ago, we, I was downloading a kind of three gigabyte video clip uh, here in Soho, and it was the, as as you'd expect with London broadband, it was going to it was taking ages to download. And I had to get to my flight to Tajikistan, Dunshanbe is where the capital where we were, and it just shows you again the kind of inherent unspoken benevolent racism that you get because I was annoyed that it was wasn't downloading here because I thought I'm in Tajikistan for the next week, it'll never download. They're bound to have crap internet. So I got into the hotel, turned turned it on, uh, turned my laptop on, and thought, well, it's going to take a week anyway to download or even more, so I might as well turn it on. Went for dinner, came back, and the, there was no downloading thing. And I was like, oh, God, is their internet so terrible that it hasn't even downloaded? Of course, I checked, and of course, what would have taken four days to download here took about 20 minutes to download there. And I was like, wow, how has that worked? And of course, the problem is with the, like, Britain is we have uh, early adopter syndrome. It's the reason why our railways are, are terrible and our underground, whereas the French railways, brilliant, because they're second generation. They learn from our mistakes. So by the time the internet came to Dunshanbe in Tajikistan, it was all fiber. So that from scratch, they've got, you know, we've got a creaking copper network here. They started all fiber right from the get-go. So they they look down on us, and rightly so. Oh, we like that with everything. <laughs> Football, yeah, know, exactly. rugby, cricket, you know, so, so was, many things. So We're that, early adopters and then don't sort of move on. But yeah, even in the most poverty-stricken areas of 
Tajikistan, they were, you know, they would get around some of them on, on donkeys. There'd be cars, but they'd all have iPhones. And I thought, what's that about? What's strange in term rural Tajikistan is, first of all, is how on earth do they all have the latest iPhones? And that was the, something that struggled. Other than the mountainous region, it's largely flat. They can stick a powerful base station up and it can serve like half the country. So they have 30 telephone providers. And of course, that means competition is even amongst targeting the very poorest customers, they'll still say, well, if you'll sign up for five years, we'll give you an iPhone. So they've all got brand new iPhones and gold teeth, which is <laughs> odd, even though they're desperately poor. It's absolutely fascinating. Tell me about this donkey journey. I think it was part of the fact that it was just kind of, we were made to feel welcome and they were thinking, how can we do it? I mean, I imagine they could have taken us by car, but we were going around all the villages uh, where they'd set up these village banks and we just basically got involved in, you know, donkey rides really I think it was <laughs> I think it was more a little bit just as a novelty really but uh, yeah they, they use in some areas that's what all they can use as a form of transport and what were the villages like tough tough there's no infrastructure you know there, there were it sounds a cliche but there were literally people catching rats and putting them on skewers and then selling them by the side of the road you, you get those little kind of you know those kind of disposable barbecues that you can get from B&Q and Tesco's for like four quid and it's basically just like a metal tray. There was a lot of that going on where people were selling things. Yeah, I wouldn't have eaten that, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was great. I, 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 I'm very lucky with my work that I've gone to places that I wouldn't have gone on vacation, but I'm glad I've been because it's opened my eyes. I would never have gone to Nicaragua, but I spent 10 days there and it was, I mean, the people were absolutely Brilliant. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So, I, you know, I think that's great when you can travel for, to places that you wouldn't travel to. What was your best experience in Nicaragua? Oh, the food. Central America's lovely and the people are lovely. Again, it's your own prejudice, but because of, you know, their former communist country and, and former dictatorship and all of that kind of thing, you would assume that everything would be terrible and uh, not run properly. But in fact, you'd be surprised at how they do some things much better than we do. And that's a big eye-opener. Well, of course, a lot of things that they were doing over there were terrible and much worse than us. So, do you remember the um, the musical Avenue Q? Yes. So the, one of their songs is Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, right? <laughs> and it does make you... You could say my precon preconceptions were challenged, but actually you do fly somewhere and there's a little bit of just... You just assume automatically that we'll be better at everything. And that's one of the ways that I think travel does broaden the mind because actually even so countries that we would you know, look down upon in, without saying it as overtly. It's actually, they're, they're beating us in a lot of areas and they look down on us rightly so. Yes, there, there is that and it does broaden your mind in that way. Is tra travel important to you then? Oh yeah, very much so. I absolutely love travel. I, there was a cartoon in the uh, Telegraph, Matt did it a few months ago, which I thought was hilarious though, where it, uh, it said, uh, hey family, it's time to go on vacation, so it's time for us to stare at our iPhones in a different location. And I've always, I thought that was absolutely right, because when, when I'm at work, I look at my phone. When I'm at home, I look at my phone. When I'm in the airport waiting to board the plane, I look at my phone. When I board the plane, I look at my phone in airplane mode, so I read stuff I've saved or watch a film. I then land, take my phone out of airplane mode, look at my phone to deal with my emails, look at my phone on the way into, from the airport to the hotel, and then look at my phone a little bit in the hotel, and then tomorrow, the day after, I'll then look at my phone for work. So it's just, a, it's just, I'm just staring at my iPhone in different locations, largely. It is, it is part of, it's all, you kid yourself, it's part of your work, and it is part of your work, and it is a really integral part of my work. 
our work, your work, my work, everyone's work these days, that you have to be online and have this presence, even if it's not actually, you know, some of it, the social media isn't actually directly related to your work. You, you say it's part of work. But I'm sure there's plenty of times when we could all just put down our phones and we don't have to be, you know, sort of contactable or online and there every moment. I was reading this article today about non-places and it was saying that non-places are places like communal areas where you have to be like airports like almost on a, a train these sort of non-places that get you from a to b or you have to go between uh you have to pass through to get to other places and how that is instead of sitting there reading your phone actually you should be on the on the train looking out the bleeding window or sitting at the airport and looking who's who you know seeing who's there and actually you know, phone addiction has got so bad for many of us that, that we don't do that and we're taking in a lot less maybe than, than we used to, but taking in a, little, a lot more information, you know, from the, from the world through our, through our hands standing there. I, I think it's even worse than you say it is as well because a, a friend of mine uh, came off Instagram recently and um, he was... Da, da. <laughs> and he said, that, he said, the thing is, he said, I was travelling somewhere for a day's walk and as I was on my way I was thinking about how I would best Instagram it rather than just do it so it's not even that they even if they are staring outside that train train window they're only doing it to Instagram it and like you know there's that phrase holiday spam where people send daily updates and to be honest I'm guilty of that as well and that's that is a problem really where you end up sometimes doing things I mean I, when we drove from Santa Barbara to Yosemite last week, that was a five hour drive. And one of the things that I was thinking of as I was driving there is how I would Instagram it. And that is, honestly, it's getting a bit ridiculous, even for me. But the thought of not taking a few pictures. And it's like when you go to concerts and people are filming it and they're looking at their phone. I'm thinking, Taylor Swift's only 20 feet away from you. Why don't you look at her? You can still hold your phone up. And you, I couldn't even see her sometimes because there's, there's like a sea of phones. Yeah, everyone's doing it. And then you feel, I mean, I do it myself. And then you think, am I going to watch that? You know, am I really going to watch that? Mind you, I did. I saw Pink Floyd in Hyde Park last oh, week. You know, wow. Roger Waters last week. And he was amazing. And they, he did this thing where he... he uh, turns the stage into a massive Battersea power station like on the front color, cover of Animals and that was incredible and I did do a bit of filming yeah, that but I was self-conscious thinking you're looking at me thinking I'm a twat you know <laughs> I was at um, I was at a dinner for one of our clients one of our clients is Rob Stringer he runs Sony Music and uh, we were at a dinner in London this is name dropping now and Harry Styles did a couple of songs acoustically for him and I filmed them I filmed it mainly for my nieces and then I just thought do you know what there's no one else filming it I might just stick it on Twitter and see with their, you know, and I had mentioned him, and of, and of course I must have got caught by a few bots. Uh, and in the end, it had like something ridiculous, like forty thousand views within sort of two hours. So your little video, that you yeah, done, yeah. And out of those forty thousand views, I think I maybe got three new followers because no one cares about me. <laughs> but it just shows you that uh, you know the power of these things. Oh, it is. It's so Black Mirror, isn't it? It's so Black Mirror. It's it's life has changed. What do you think of say Instagram with sort of travel bloggers, and that that has helped change the whole travel industry in many ways. Yeah, and I like it. I mean, you can, you know, I do like to see my friends have fun and I get lots of ideas, but I do worry about social media and travel because it's true what they're doing. It's the same with me. I'm guilty of this, but I only put the good stuff on. You know, I'll do four Instagrams a week. And if you look at that without knowing me, you think, wow, what a great life. But actually, of course, most of it is just I'm sat in an office staring at a screen, responding to emails. Like everyone else. Yeah, just living a generic, boring life. Um, but of course, th th that's the bit that does concern me. But I, I, I like looking at what my friends are doing. I'm naturally curious about them. And you do get ideas 
uh, looking at it. But I, I've never done a hashtag on Instagram because and you, I think there's something a little bit desperate about when you see a post and there's like 20 hashtags and they're just after the likes. My niece who's 14, I, I took a picture the other week and Instagrammed it, uh, uh, we were all at a wedding and she said, oh, you've got to wait till about half six to, because that's the best time to get the most likes. And I'm like, oh goodness, great, that's not why I'm but doing it. It's not it. necessarily about likes, it's about followers and the more followers you have, the more you can, you're seeing, you know, the more valuable you're almost seeing to people who are on social media. And that, to me, I, I ignored social media for a long time, apart from just fiddling around on Facebook and having chatting with my mates. And then turn, suddenly turned around and realised that these people who I was, you know, when I had a national radio show every single day, I should have been out there building up followers on Twitter, but I wasn't really thinking about it. And people Thanks. who were doing what I did have now got these massive accounts, which doesn't necessarily translate to anything in particular, but it does help you know, when you're sharing things and you've got something to say, it does help. Yeah, and it's a problem for people like Jeremy Vine, because I've had him on my podcast, because he, he, he can say, follow me on Twitter, but he's not allowed to say his Twitter handle. And the reason why is because the BBC ban most of their presenters, unless it's a BBC branded Twitter account, because, you know, Jeremy gets all of his traffic and his celebrity from the fact he presents the Lunchtime Show on Radio 2, but he, he, owns, he owns that, not the BBC. So he has to say, you know, you can find me on Twitter. And I'm thinking, well, if you're saying that on air, you might as well just say the Jeremy Vine. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's a, it's a whole new world. But you're, when you're saying that you're just sitting in an office like the rest of us, you are going to LA and New York and San Francisco at least once a month. Where else would you like to go if you've got any more sort of travel ambitions? We've got another driving holiday in America planned for nearer Christmas. We're going to start in Texas and then work up in the middle, literally do the middle states, ending up at the, North Dakota. We've got a two-week holiday in uh, Tokyo planned. So I'm taking my nieces. We're flying to uh, Singapore. Using a few air miles? Yeah, so we've got an account with Norwegian Air Airlines. I mean, first of all, they're incredibly cheap anyway. I mean, I can get to New York with sort of three months' notice. Because my, my travel schedule is every other week. My PA can book my flights three months in advance. And it's, it is literally like... 190 quid really, each way amazing. and maybe 400 the way back of its premium it's wow. insanely cheap but so Norwegian flight to Singapore so I use my points to get the, the flights to Singapore and then we're going to do a day uh, to the Universal Studios there and they've got the biggest water park in, in Asia there and then we're going to fly to Tokyo and we're there for 10 days then we fly back via Singapore so that'll be great but like you do build up a lot of points like we did this two week driving holiday in California uh, we got the flights cheap I spent most of the money on a flash car, I got a sports car that I hired, and all of the hotels were on points. So actually it was quite a cheap holiday. It's one of those things that people that travel, like rich people get given stuff, people that travel more can, you know, sort of blag free hotels and, and cheap flights and all that sort of stuff. It's one of the problems politically about why most people support lower taxes, because the true people who only benefit from lower taxes are rich people. But the reason why working class people don't want rich people to be taxed heavily is because ultimately, like I do, they aspire to be rich themselves one day, and therefore I don't want to be taxed heavily when, when I'm rich. That's the thing that gets me out of bed on the morning. You know, I think I'm going to be successful one day. Yeah, uh, so that's fascinating. It's very Daily Mail, isn't it? Yeah, it um, is. Uh, very quickly, before I ask you my last couple of questions, you've talked a lot about Brexit on your Twitter feed. And, and how do you think it's going? Do you know what? I'm <laughs> utterly bored of it. There's a scene in season four of The Wire when Stringer Bell, all of his enemies get in by accident, uh, by design, into like this warehouse where they're all going to kill him. And like four people are after him, and in the end, all four come to him. There's Omar and his old boss, and they've all got guns pointed at him, and they all make this big speech. And in the end, he interrupts them all and just says, can you just shoot me already? And they do. And that, to me, is what Brexit is now. I don't care if it's the apocalypse now. I've run out of patience. If it is, let's get on with it. But there's endless 
waffle. I, I said this on my own podcast recently, is that, you know, Kat, we've had Katia Adlon, she's great, the BBC's Europe correspondent, it's not her fault. But sometimes when it's Brexit, I, I don't care whether it's good or bad. I literally go to the back to the kitchen and make a cup of tea. And it might be earth-shatteringly important, but I can't be bothered anymore. We've become immune to it almost, haven't we? I, I mean, clearly, clearly there's going to be free movement of goods. They're going to restrict free movement of people. There's going to be some advantage and disadvantage in others, and we're going to have to make it work. And, you know, we're just going to have to make the best of it. But the, the political issue, ultimately, is there was an in-principle, in-out referendum where the majority of the British people who voted, voted to leave. There was then a general election where all of the main parties that took part, they stood on a platform of invoking Article 50 and making the go of it. So, you know, that's one of the problems I have with Remainers, is they've got a point on a lot of it. I wouldn't have been bothered if Remain would have won, if I'm honest. I don't think we should have called a referendum, really, but they, they did, they made a pig's ear of it. But ultimately, it's anti-democratic to say that we can't invoke Brexit because we there will be riots on the street. We should have not gone ahead with it in the first place. I, I think no, nobody knew enough. I am actually a Remainer, but nobody knew enough. You know, We don't know, we, we don't know, they don't know. The politicians no. don't no know. How are, we, how are we meant to know? The best tweet I ever read on this was from the philosopher A.C. Grayling. Tony Grayling, I've met him a few times, he's a great guy, and it was about five or six minutes after the referendum polls closed on the day of the referendum. And he tweeted, and it was something like, I don't know what the result is gonna be, it could be win, it could be remain, it could be leave, but I think we can all agree on just this one point, calling the referendum was an effing stupid idea. And I actually thought, never, never a truer word spoken. Danny Dyer called it really well a few weeks ago. He, did, yeah. he called David Cameron. If I say the word, I might have used it already, but if I say the word, I might have to mark this as explicit. Explicit. So they never he, know. Yeah. If you've got any, if you've got a grass listening, you know, uh, he's really offended by the language. Well, yeah. hopefully, no, please, nobody grass us up if we've used any bad language. Very quick uh, plug for the book and the podcast. Well, there are loads of PR books out there. And if you've read all the best ones and then you want to start to sample some of the poorly written ones, then buy my book, <laughs> Fast PR. Uh, it's a hundred and odd do's and don'ts. It's the book I always wanted to read when I first started out because there was not a book that was accessible. I've kind of tried to make it quite quirky as well. And there was lots of, when I first started doing PR, I bought all these books about how to do it. And it was these big thick doorstep you know, books where I put them on the shelf and I genuinely intended to read them, but then I just couldn't be bothered. But, and that's my character flaw, but I couldn't, and I thought, I want a book that's actually accessible. So yeah, I promised myself I'd write it within a year, a non-negotiable deadline, and I wrote it in travel delay situations, airports, lounges, planes. Non-places. Yeah, no, I wrote it, I like that phrase. Yeah. I wrote, I promised myself it would take a year, and four years later, I finally got out the door. It's a bit like a marathon where the, the first third is exciting because you've just started, you've got all that enthusiasm, and the last third's exciting because the end is in sight, but the middle third, you should just kill yourself. There's, there's <laughs> nothing to, there's nothing to, there's no reason to live in the middle of, and it's the same with the book. The middle two years of writing that book was utterly joyless. I was literally just getting it out. Now I read it, and I'm glad I did it, of course, and even the joyless bits, I've put effort into making it, and it's great, now it's done, but in the, at the time it was just like, you know, I'd rather just sit and sit on the plane and stare out the windows, you would say, but I had to force myself to be useful and productive. I thought it was brilliant, and I, I read it all in, in an afternoon, and that's just because I'm a fast reader, and I thought it was very good, and I, I'm taking tips from it now. And the Media Masters podcast, I'm very much enjoying as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, as you've seen, I chat a lot in real life, and the biggest lesson I learned in presenting that is literally to shut up. Uh, you get a lot of feedback from from listeners and one I got an email 
I'd done about maybe 20 episodes and someone sent an anonymous email and it literally said from anonymous. And I thought that was great because I thought, oh God, what they're going to say. And it says, Paul, I've listened to everyone. You're a really good interviewer. And what I'm about to say, I mean benevolently and in your interest to make you make, improve your interviewing style. And it's very simply this. You talk too much, shut the F up and let your interviewee speak. Yours kindly and with affection, anonymous. And I, I actually took them at their words, so now I deliberately shut up. Oh, I'll ask that's... the question and then give them the space to answer. Is there anything I've missed before we... Uh, I asked you oh, well, if question. you want to buy my book, it's fast-pr.online. You can always tell if the web- <laughs> you can always tell if a website ends in dot online. It means that they've ballsed it up and you know dot com and dot net and all of that's already gone. So that's that one. And Media Masters is mediamasters.fm. Yeah, if you'd uh, like to listen to that, it'd be great. And you've got some very very high profile people on there, and it is really an education. It's very good. To be honest, it, I think it's just like rungs on a ladder. Really, the bigger names you get, you could you then use that. To, I mean, to be honest, yeah. And some some of the time, I mean, some of the people that were turning me down two years ago and now asking to come on. I mean, the guests themselves are the best marketeers. Like, we had Perez Hilton on, and he's got 8 million Twitter followers. And I think he tweeted once or twice that he'd been on. He got us like 35,000 new listeners. How the hell did you get him, and can you get him for me? Yeah, actually, Perez is a really nice guy and really switched on. You know, I, I was fascinated to the depth of which he'd really thought through his business strategy to monetize the fact that he you know that he is this blogger and he's crazy and it's celeb driven and he's much less catty than he used to be uh you know and how do you you know it's fascinating but yeah uh, do you know a lot of the time you just need to ask them it really is that simple right i'll ask you my last question relating to travel and it's always about music because i think that travel and music often go hand in hand because you have more time to travel and more space, you're in those non-places, looking out the window of that aeroplane. If you had to pick one song that reminds you of a particular time when you've been travelling, a particular good time or a bad time or memorable time, what would that song be? Oh, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, now I, I tend to not listen to music on planes. I listen to podcasts. We, my wife and I went to this driving holiday in California and it was two weeks. So we were driving for 13 days of that, sometimes for three or four hours. And we, we put the old Ricky Gervais podcast on, you know, with Cal Pilkington. And we started at the old XFM days, then went through The Guardian and then Seasons 2, 3, 4 and 5 and then the, the specials that they did. So we must have spent seven of those days listening non-stop to Ricky Gervais laughing at the nonsense <laughs> Cal Pilkington comes up. And I'd, I'd heard them all at the time, sort of eight, nine years ago, but it was interesting to, you know, discover them anew. But I don't know about you, but... I don't really listen to albums anymore now. I tend to just put playlists on, and, and that is actually a bit sad, really. So, so I don't in, know. That was a non-answer, wasn't it? Was it was a non-answer from an, an, in a non-music in non-places. Non-places. I love the phrase non-places. I hope I've got that right. I don't know who I've stolen it from. I'll pretend it's mine. It's not. So you don't have a song for me. You've got a podcast. Yes, I would say so. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. It's a great pleasure. I wish you the very best. Thank you so much, Paul, and for being our first guest to choose a podcast instead of a song. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Next week, we have Jane Garvey from BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour. See you then.